This is the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. All right, good evening. Uh, my name's Ben Milner. Hope you can hear out there. Um, those of you in the, yes, okay, I got a signal. Glad you can hear. Um, so those prayer requests, just to mention those again, uh, if you don't have a writing implement, you might have a friend of yours nearby who has one. Um, it's not too late to fill one of those out. Uh, I have a pen, so if you want to, and you have no other way, come up and see me after church and you can write one down um, with my pen and just hand it to me. And again, put those in the baskets that we're going to have right up here. We'll have a basket for you to put those into. So we are at the beginning of uh, what they call the Holy Week, which is the last week of the life of Jesus. And uh, on Thursday night is the night that this story takes place, the night of his crucifixion. Um, And there's always a Monday Thursday service which I would highly recommend that you find around town and go to. Uh, It's a great way to just remember what happened on Good Friday in this story, which was about uh, noon Friday till 3 p.m. Friday that these events occurred. And that's really when all the the most powerful work was done uh, by Christ on the cross. So when we talk about the cross uh, in Christianity, we're talking about this story right here, um, these fateful three hours. And I want to just remind you of last week and uh, the trial of Jesus we talked about. That was Thursday night. That trial occurred just before the crucifixion. And if you were Jesus and you're going through that excruciating trial, it would not have felt like a plan. It would not have felt anything like something that anybody had planned out. It would have felt exactly the opposite. It would have felt like chaos. It would have felt like caprice and it would have felt random um three times he was pronounced innocent by the authorities the roman authorities uh the judge bullied uh was bullied by this angry mob into forcing him to crucifixion and um there was no due process it was justice gone haywire it did not look like a plan at all i want you to like appreciate the fact that if you are a disciple or if you're jesus you would, have not, you would not have thought there was something going on behind the scenes. He was like bouncing around like a pinball between Herod and Pilate and the chief priests and the crowd. And so now you're being crucified, just bouncing around randomly around this machine. Now you're being crucified. And I just want to stress to you that it would have not felt like a plan. That would have felt like nothing organized behind that whole random system of tragedy and horror. But what I want to say this evening is there was a plan. And it's right when there doesn't look like a plan that there is a plan. 
Um, and not only is there a plan, but there's a plan for your salvation, for your flourishing, for your redemption, for your deliverance. There's always a plan, no matter what you're going through, uh, it is a plan for your good and to prosper you, uh, to bless you. So those are the two points. Uh, number one, the plan. Number two, the plan of salvation. That that is the nature of the plan. So in verse 33, it says, at the place called the skull, they crucified him and the criminals. And it's really interesting that it's called the skull. That really brings to home the true horror and grotesque nature of the degradation of his crucifixion. It was the most horrific, annihilating, pulverizing form of torture and death penalty that the human race has ever come up with. It was created by the Persians to basically say this person is no longer a human being. And they would put this, uh, this set of criminals on crosses on this horrible looking mountain, this, this rock outcropping on the edge of Jerusalem uh, called, it looked like a skull, Golgotha was the name. I mean, the very name Golgotha and skull sound like what it is. It's this horrible thing. And the Romans would leave their corpses up there so that the people passing by could say, that's what happens when you cross Rome. That's the fate of a human being when they cross Rome. Not only do they die excruciating torture, but they are left out, hanging out to dry, um, with all of their humanity erased. And so not only was there this skull rock, but it says that there was pitch blackness for three hours, which was the reign of darkness. This was the reign of evil and darkness when the very Son of God was being crucified. So three hours of pitch blackness on the place of the skull, and finally there's this scream. When it says in verse 46, he called out with a loud voice, that was a scream. And I think about that, uh, that painting by Edvard Munch. Have you ever seen that painting of the scream? Uh, that, that is a great depiction of what this story really was like. It was that nauseating, horrible scream. Um, and there's a quote that I came across this week uh, by a French philosopher and atheist named uh, Jean-Paul Sartre. And he says, the world is not the product of intelligence, but a dirty, crumpled up piece of wet paper, absurd and nauseating. We are all born by accident and we all die by chance. It is a crumpled up piece of wet paper, absurd and nauseating. If I were not a Christian, that's what I would believe. That's what I did believe when I was not a Christian. We are all born by accident and we die by chance and there's no meaning to anything. And the story of the crucifixion, that's what it feels like. It feels like ultimate goodness has been snuffed out by chaotic evil. And Jeremiah 29, 11 says, I know the plans I have for you, the plans to prosper you, and not to harm you. And that's a famous verse that a lot of Christians love. I love that verse. And sometimes it does not feel like there's a plan. And sometimes that verse is, you just have to cling to that when there doesn't look like there's anything going on at all that's gonna prosper you. There, there's a lot that goes on that looks like it's harming you. I knew somebody whose dad was having a routine surgery and uh, the scalpel slipped and uh, a blood vessel was severed and he died. Just kind of a random, bizarre form of death. The crucifixion felt a lot like that. 
Um, there was this thing that should not have happened that way. It was, it was absurd in a way. It, it did, it, there's no reason that should have happened. All these little kind of random accidental things led to this crucifixion. Uh, C.S. Lewis, a famous Christian writer, his wife, uh, Joy Davidman, was um, diagnosed with bone cancer, terminal bone cancer. A pastor came over and prayed for her, and she recovered miraculously. And they were so excited. They went on a long trip to Greece and Wales. And there's a movie called Shadowlands that depicts all this. They were so happy she had been delivered. Well, just a few months later, she died suddenly. And it, to C.S. Lewis, it felt cruel. It felt like God had kind of given him this hope, and then all of a sudden it snatched it away. And this is what he wrote. He goes, uh, this is what C.S. Lewis writes in his memoir. It's called A Grief Observed. He says, you go to God when you're desperate, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, the sound of bolting and double bolting, and then silence. And this is written from a, a man who's a Christian who felt that way. So the point is, there are times you're going to feel that way. There are absolutely times in your life where you're going to feel that way. And that's why I'm sure that, I am sure that Jesus had feelings like that. When he said, uh, Lord, let this cup pass from me. He was not looking forward to this crucifixion. And so you know that he felt like the door was being slammed in his face by God when he's dying on this cross. And yet there's two times where he, he cries out in the middle of all of this despair he refuses to give in. He calls God his father twice. At the beginning and at the end of this passage, he says in verse 34, Father, forgive them. So he, he is refusing to give in to the absurd and nauseating wet piece of crumpled up paper. He will not live that way. He says, Father, I know you're out there. I know that you're watching over this. I want you to forgive them. And then at the very end of the passage, even more trust, he says, Father, into your hands, into your kind and loving hands, I am putting everything, my whole spirit, I put into your hands. I trust that you know what you're doing. I trust that you have a plan. So I am, I am not an out-of-control pinball. I'm actually, Jesus is saying, I am the climax of a masterpiece that has been written for centuries and centuries, millennia even. So if you look at verse 34, it says that the uh, soldiers, they threw dice to divide his garments, which seems like a very cruel and once again, a very random and a kind of absurd, grotesque event that while he's dying on the cross, these soldiers are just gambling for his clothes. Well, guess what? That is a prophecy from Psalm 22:18, where it is written, they cast lots to divide his clothing. In other words, that was planned from a thousand years earlier. Even that little detail, that horrible little detail about Gambling away his clothing, that was part of a plan from a thousand years ago. And, and whatever happens in your life that seems as horrible as that, that was also a plan from a thousand years ago. Nothing is random. Nothing happens by accident. In verse 35, it says, the rulers scoffed at him. That's a very rare, rare world, word for scoffed. In Psalm 22, 7, it says, all who see me scoff. Same word, rare word. Again, part of the plan. And then in verse 46, Jesus says, into your hands I commit my spirit. Psalm 31.5 also says, into your hands I commit my spirit. In other words, the writer is telling us again and again and again, this was 
plan from before the beginning of time. It is written down so that you would know that this is, there's a plan behind this. This is not chaos. There's pain behind, behind the pain, there is a plan. And God is working and he's bringing about healing. So whatever parents you had, whatever your adolescence was like, all the broken relationships in your life, somehow, in a way that no one could ever explain, there's something going on. There's reasons for these things. These, these things have reasons for them. So when I was in high school, my first day, I've mentioned this several times, my friends walked away from me in the cafeteria, and I would have never thought there was a plan for that. And that was cut three times by uh, the basketball coach. Did not seem like a plan in any way for that. In uh, college, first semester, it was horrible. I had no friends. I was incredibly lonely. I would never have thought there was any plan to that. I uh, went to London, uh, fell in love with someone. She dumped me. Didn't feel like there was a plan in that either. But even behind that, God was working. He was doing things. It was very painful. I was berated as a young uh, pastor for being an incompetent church planner. It was very painful. There was a plan behind that. Um, I was plagued by anxiety attacks, a heart attack. My wife had cancer. All these things. And, you know, if, if, if you had gone back to 1986 and uh, try to, like, pull up a whiteboard and, and kind of create a plan that would bring healing into my life, uh, I would not have had any of those things on that whiteboard. I would never have planned those things out. But somehow, through all that stuff, God was healing me. He was teaching me to rely on him. And he was bringing about humility in my life. And he was teaching me how to love people. And apparently, there's no other way for God to do these things than to bring about all these things that are so painful and so difficult. And so his ways are not our ways. The, the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of human beings. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. It's kind of like a, a, a fanatic soccer fan watching a football game, an American football game, and saying, "What? this is crazy. None of this makes any sense. These rules make no sense at all. But we know that behind all that craziness, there is something going on that's organized. There's actually something that is happening there that has meaning to it and purpose to it. And there's a book called Chance or the Dance, great title. What the author is saying is basically either everything is chance or it's this beautiful, complicated dance. And the writer says either nothing means anything or everything means everything. Either nothing means anything or everything means everything. And that's the basic choice you have as a human being in this world to think everything is random and chaotic and meaningless or there's purpose and meaning behind everything that happens. So that's point one, there is a plan. Point two is that it is a plan of salvation. And salvation is a word that Christians use and not many other people use. It's a strange word. And so I said you define the word. The word basically means God's plan to rescue uh, the, the human race and rescue the planet and deliver the planet from evil um, and to bring about shalom and peace all over the planet and to make you a part of that plan of bringing peace to the planet. So God's plan is that he wants to come into the earth as a human being. God becomes incarnate in Jesus Christ and he wants to come and he wants to pardon everyone and to forgive 
everyone, and then to bring them all to be with him. So he wants to take away the barrier between us and then bring everyone and reconcile them to him in paradise. That's his plan. And we see both of those things executed in this gruesome moment of torture and horror. Both of those parts of the plan. So first of all, in verse 34, uh, Jesus inexplicably prays for his enemies. He told us in Luke 6, 27, pray for those who persecute you, pray for your enemies. And now we see him embodying that. He is enacting that. What he taught us to do, to pray for our enemies, he is doing that in spades. Right here on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. These are the people who are gambling for his clothes and mocking him, castigating him, and he is praying for them. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I mean, he can barely breathe at this point. That was part of the horror of crucifixion. They, they hung you up and so you couldn't catch a breath. And so he can barely breathe and he's praying, Father, forgive them. His face is dirty and blood streaked and swollen where he's been beaten and he begrudges them nothing. He begrudges them nothing. It says to the crowd, he, the, the crowd says, he saved others, let him save himself. Verse 35, they're mocking him. And he says, Father, forgive them. Forgive the whole crowd. The soldiers are dividing his garments. They're gambling, they're mocking him as well. By gambling for his clothes, he says, Father, forgive them too. The, the, the sign above him says, this is the king of the Jews. That was ironic, that was sarcasm. So again, mockery and scorn. And he says, I want you to forgive Pilate also who wrote that sign. And then there's this other person being crucified next to him. And even that person in verse 39 says, are you not the Christ? Well, then save yourself if you're the Christ. So all the ravings of this rabid human group of people, and we would have been the same way. I mentioned that last time. All these ravings of these rabid people and he just says, forgive them, forgive them, forgive them, forgive them, forgive them. And the reason he gives for this is, is crazy. He says they don't know what they're doing. I mean, they seem to know what they were doing. The nails didn't just accidentally slip into his hands. It seemed like there was a lot of malice of forethought. But he says they don't know what they're doing. In other words... His commitment to forgive us is so relentless that he will overlook almost anything. He gives us so much credit. And that's all we need to be. We need to give people the benefit of the doubt because he gives us so much slack. He's, he's saying they don't really know what they're doing. They, they, they don't understand. They're so foolish. They're so weak. They're so ignorant. Pardon them for all their sins. I love these people. I love them. I want them, Father. And of course, the father wants them too. The two of them are doing this together. And when he says, forgive them, he's not saying, you know, I hope one day, father, that they will experience forgiveness. I, I hope that one day they can accept my forgiveness. He's not saying that. He is saying that cosmically and judicially and eternally, their sins are pardoned. It's a declaration. Forgive them. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they were doing. So the question I would have for you is, is, is have, you, have you ever sat beneath the feet of the Son of God being crucified and mocked him? And I, I'm guessing the answer is no. And so if they didn't know what they're doing, then you don't know what you're doing either. And he will forgive you. He is so committed to forgiving you. 
because you've never done anything like these people did. And he said, Father, forgive them. So how can you withhold forgiveness from anyone when you are that forgiven? And the whole universe is just filled with pardon and with mercy. The man next to him is a great example. So there's, there's this other criminal. The one criminal mocks him. The other criminal has this little prayer he prays, this brief little prayer. And this guy um, to his left was probably not a thief. For whatever reason, there's this thing called the thief on the cross. And so there's this belief that that person was a thief, but may have been a thief, may have been more than that. They don't, Rome didn't crucify people lightly. This guy was a scoundrel. He was a wicked, uh, evil, malicious, violent, perhaps sexual assault. This was a, this was not a good person to his left. Okay. And this person to his left, not only does he forgive that person, but then he promises that person, this person on his left, he promises them paradise immediately. Guaranteed. He says, truly, I say to you today, that's Friday, sometime on Friday when you die later this afternoon, this very day, you will be with me in paradise. And paradise is the word for Eden. This is the restoration of the Garden of Eden. This is uh, not just what we would call heaven, but something that is a physical, uh, like renewing of the entire world. But the next thing that this guy will experience, his next conscious experience after dying will be to be with Jesus in paradise, in this place of perfect shalom and peace, where everything is set right. So this, this is a, a murderer. Let's say it's a murderer. Barely even prays for salvation. All, all he says is, remember me. That's pretty weak. I mean, that's, that's not really saying a whole lot. I don't know what he understood, but he didn't understand a whole lot about what was going on up there. He says, all he says is, remember me. And Jesus says, paradise for you today, guaranteed, truly I say to you. Not maybe, or let's see, or let's wait and see how you do. Like, let's see how you die and make sure that you don't do anything wrong between now and when you die. No, he says, guaranteed, because you asked just for me to remember you, uh, you're going to be in paradise with me forever. Now, this guy was not baptized. Okay, he, he, he did no good works at all. Uh, he, he barely knew who Jesus was. He did not know about the doctrine of the incarnation, that Jesus was both God and man. Um, he, he prayed no sinner's prayer. He never went to church. It was barely even a gesture of asking for forgiveness, and Jesus is so quick to forgive him. It's almost embarrassing, really. Uh, the fact that God will take us um, with the amount of reluctance we still feel about him is almost embarrassing. How, how little it takes for God to welcome us. His eagerness to be with us is almost embarrassing. It's like a first date, and you know, and you say, this is kind of fun, I kind of enjoyed this. And he's like, will you marry me? He's <laughs> just like so eager to be with you forever that it's almost embarrassing. I think about our dog. Um, some of you met our crazy neurotic dog, Ricky. And uh, in the morning, every morning uh, when we wake up, uh, Ricky is just ready. He's just ready to go. And he, wake up, he wakes up and he can barely believe it's, it's, it's so exciting to wake up again. He, he can't believe we're there on the bed. And the second that, that there's even a movement in the covers, like if I just turn over to the side, 
Ricky is immediately on top of the bed, licking our face, nudging us with his nose, uh, ready to go. He's ready to go. He's ready to interact with us that day. We'll spray him with a spray bottle to get him away, and he just comes back. He cannot get enough of us. Uh, in spite of all of our rejection, he wants to be with us. His tail is going crazy, and um, it's kind of embarrassing for him, frankly, because uh, he's showing so much affection with so little in return, and I hate to compare... <laughs> I hate to compare that to uh, the love of God, but God's eagerness to be with us is simply astounding. Um, that he would welcome that guy, pardon him, say he doesn't know what he's doing, and then say, I want you with me in paradise. I'm so ready for you to be with us. You're not going to believe how good my father is. I can't wait for you to see what Eden is like. Um, even as we display maximum hostility, right? The cross is like the maximum amount of hostility you could ever show. The, the cross is us saying to God, get away from us. I don't want anything to do with you. Stay away. It's like a porcupine shooting out the, the quills. And then the cross is also God saying, like, I want you so much. I'm willing to go through your quills and be stabbed by you to have you. I want you so much. The cross is both at the same time. Our rejection and then God's Welcome. It's this insane, beautiful, perfect plan. And I, I, I sometimes like to think about this from Satan's point of view. I love thinking about this uh, from Satan's point of view. So here's, here's Satan. And um, it's kind of like in, in Harry Potter when Voldemort is standing over Harry Potter and he's, he's just making fun of him. He's, gl he's gloating over his victory. And all, in all the movies, the, the, the villain always gloats for a little too long and then they get destroyed. But Think about the white witch gloating over Aslan or whoever you want to think of. Uh, I think Thanos gloats a little bit in the Avengers. There's always some where they make a little speech and something like that. So Satan is gloating. And he's just, he's glorying over Jesus. You know, Satan has gotten the chief priests to hate him. Satan has entered into Judas. And he's gotten Judas to betray him. Satan has stirred up the crowd. And he has finally got the Son of God pinned down. His plan has worked to perfection, and he's finally won the victory, and he's lured the human race into crucifying their savior, and he is doing his little dance. <clears throat> if you've ever seen the, uh, the Lord of the Rings, you know, Gollum does his little dance on the edge of Mount Doom. He chopped off Frodo's finger. He's got the ring of power. He's ready to roll. Everything has gone horrible, and then when he's doing his little victory dance, suddenly his foot slips and he falls into Mount Doom and he destroys the ring. In the same way, Satan suddenly has everything backfire on him and the rug is pulled out from under his feet. As he hears Jesus say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit and Satan realizes, oh my gosh, he planned all that where I thought I was planning to kill him. He had a plan to use that to destroy me. And that's what we celebrate at this... This is the greatest nightmare of Satan.